our students generally fit kind of this profile of using language for their primary major once they graduate. And so that makes kind of the linking of language and proficiency um, something that's, that's kind of obvious to the students and that they're honestly looking for. They're looking to use the skills that they gain in our classroom once they go on the job market. And so it, it made kind of the proficiency initiative also a natural, a natural fit for our students. You're listening to Speaking of Language, a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This week on Speaking of Language. Leanne Spino and Karin De Bruin discuss the language proficiency initiative at the University of Rhode Island and its impact on students and the curriculum. Welcome to a new episode of Speaking of Language. I'm Angelica Kramer, the director of the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. And I'm Sam Lupowitz, the LRC's media manager. We are delighted to welcome two colleagues today, Leanne Spino and Karin De Bruin from the University of Rhode Island. Their proficiency initiative across all language programs at URI has been prominently featured in venues like the AACU's Liberal Education and ACTFL's Language Educator, and we will hear from them how proficiency and employability are connected. Welcome to Speaking of Language, Leanne and Karen. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we hear everything about your wonderful language-related initiatives at URI, will you please share with us a little bit about your background with both languages and the research interests? Sure, I'll I'll start. So this is Leanne. Um, I am a graduate of Michigan State University from the Second Language Studies program. Um, My dissertation was on the acquisition of grammatical gender agreement in L2 Spanish. Um, But while I was at Michigan State, I taught Spanish and I worked closely as the coordinating assistant to Bill Van Patten. Bill, if you're listening to this, hi. Um, (laughs) He just might be. (laughs) Yeah, great, great human being, uh, a great mentor. Um, And so I worked with him uh, on, on the Spanish language program, specifically the lower division. And so when I graduated, I got a job at Princeton University as a Spanish lecturer And there I worked on um, Aprendo, which is an interactive Spanish language um, platform designed by Princeton uh, for Princeton students. And so I've had a lot of experience, I guess, with um, kind of the more applied side of things. Um, And so, yeah, then I I landed a job at the University of Rhode Island as an assistant professor of Spanish and as their proficiency coordinator. Um, And so, yes, so now a lot of my research is tied to this initiative at, at URI. Wonderful. Karen, what about you? Yeah, so um, I got my PhD at the University of Chicago, and my dissertation was uh, nothing related to language. Uh, It was on Germaine de Stahl, uh, who is in uh, late 18th, early 19th century French um, female philosopher and writer. Um, and, uh, and I guess my, my contribution to, to all of this is, is not at all linguistic in nature. It's more in terms of leadership. Um, and so, uh, I was, uh, I came to the University of Rhode Island, um, and became the French section head. And now I'm the department chair of the, of the Department of Modern and Classical Languages and Literatures. And it's a department that's quite large. I mean, we have, um, six programs, um, uh, one, one of the programs includes uh, Arabic, Japanese, and, and classical languages. Uh, so we offer about, it, it varies on the semester, but uh, roughly around 9 to nine to 11 languages per semester. 
Um, and so that's really how I came to the Proficiency Initiative. I can tell you a little bit more about how it started a little bit later, but, uh, but it was just by virtue of, of becoming the department chair at a, at, at a strategic time. Mm -hmm. You recently published an article in Actful's Language Educator titled Increasing Graduates' Employability Through Language Proficiency and Dual Degrees. How did the URI Proficiency Initiative come about and what are you investigating? I became department chair at a at a time um, a sort of a transition time, I guess, in our department. We were in our department. We were already um, known for what's called the International Engineering Program, um, which is a program that brings together language and engineering. Um, and we have a, a national and international reputation for uh, for this uh, pioneering program. Um, and when I came when I became department chair, I noticed. I mean, one of the things that that I, I knew about our department was that we were just very siloed. So even though we did that IEP program really well, we were still just very much in language silos and competition with each other for resources. And yet there were interesting things going on in each program. And so I, I decided that, you know, I think that what we needed to do as a department was to, to come together sort of under our motto um, and then see if we couldn't move forward in, in an innovative direction. And so the motto I gave the department was um, we can do more together than we can separately. Um, and, and so we decided to take stock of what we, what we do well in our department. And what we, we have a Chinese flagship program under the National Language Flagship Programs. Uh, and so the Chinese flagship program already had in place uh, proficiency um, testing and benchmarking because all the students have to achieve a superior level of proficiency by the time they graduate after five years. So we had that. We had the IEP program and we were creating an international studies and diplomacy program. Um, and I was a co-founder of that program. And so we decided to write into that IST program, International Studies and Diplomacy program, uh, proficiency benchmarking and proficiency testing. Now, I pulled this all completely out of my butt because I was, uh, you know, I, I knew that Chinese flagship was great. I knew that we should incorporate it in our languages department. We wrote it into our ISD program. But like I told you, like, I, I, I work on German, the style of French philosopher who doesn't talk about proficiency ever. And so, um, you know, so I was like, okay, well, we need, a, we, we need people that can help us with this. And so we, write in, we wrote into our uh, ISD program proposal the hiring of a proficiency coordinator and also the hiring of an intercultural competence uh, coordinator. Um, and we got the proficiency coordinator um, right away, well, two years into the initiative, and, and she is awesome. So uh, that, That's me, by the way. Many thanks, Connie. <laughs> <laughs> So Leanne can pick up what we're doing with proficiency. Sure. Um, so something that you may have been able to glean um, from Karin's description is that a lot of our majors are dual majors. And not only that, a lot of our majors have declared a language major after they've declared some other major. Mm. So they decide that they want to do engineering and then they tack on a language or they decide that they want to do business and then they add a language kind of thing. Um, and so that means that our, our students generally fit kind of this profile of using language, um, you know, probably in hopes for, for their primary major once they graduate. And so that makes kind of the linking of language and proficiency um, something that's, that's kind of obvious to the students and that they're honestly looking for. They're looking to use the skills that they gain in our classroom once they go on the job market after they've graduated. And so it, it made kind of the proficiency initiative also a natural, a natural fit for our students. And so what we're trying to do is look critically at our program and decide what can we do or what do we need to do to benefit these students so that when they go out on the job market or when they go out to use their language after they leave our doors, 
how can we ensure that they can use the language to the best of their ability and continue to maintain um, that language proficiency. So that's kind of, I, I would say, kind of the crux or the core of what we're, we're really interested um, in for the students. Um, and it's also, it's not easy. <laughs> so getting to advanced levels of proficiency within the, the confines of four years of academic study um, isn't, um, is, is, doesn't come very naturally, right? I mean, that's just not how language acquisition works. Yeah. Um, and so it's a bit of an uphill battle, <laughs> but we're fighting the good fight <laughs> um, on, on behalf of them. And so I'd say our core our core research um, question is what can we do to, to best benefit these students in this context? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I'll, we'll probably talk a lot about proficiency today, but I, I want to <laughs> make it super clear that we're not just focused on proficiency. So that's not really the, the only goal for our students. Um, we also have a, a great um, intercultural communicative competence, ICC coordinator, Dr. Bing Mu, who, who is doing great work, um, kind of focusing more on that side of things. Mm -hmm. So we're not we're not only on the proficiency bandwagon, sure. but, but um, you know, it is, it is a core goal that we have for our students. Yeah, wonderful. And as part of this proficiency initiative, um, in your article, you lay out three strategies. So it's not only about testing students, but also looking at faculty training and the effect um, on the curriculum. Can you talk a little bit about those three different areas before we dive more into um, testing and actually what you found to be the benefits of that? Testing alone does not, does not a good program make. Um, and so what we've really focused on in addition to, to testing is faculty training and then curricular revamping. So I'll start with faculty training because that obviously should precede curricular um, <laughs> revamping. Uh, and so what, as you could tell from Karin's description, the first step that the department took was to hire experts, which um, Bill Van Patten has a great white paper about <laughs> the importance of that. Um, and so, so yeah, so we, we hired experts and um, all of our future hires are, are also um, most likely tied to these initiatives as well. Nice. And so that's, that's kind of one way to naturally build um, uh, the expertise within your department is to make sure that the new people coming in um, yeah. are, are on board. Um, and so that was that was one thing. Another um, incredible feat, or at least I still view it as incredible, even though I've been uh, at URI for three years, uh -huh. is that all of our um, full-time faculty members have attended the four-day um, ACTFL training, nice. where you learn about the guidelines and everything, which four full days is a long time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's an intense training. Yep. Um, and so the fact that everyone has... Uh, you know, graciously and enthusiastically, honestly, agreed to um, complete that training has been uh, really, really great to see. And now about, I think about 50% of our full-time faculty members are also either pursuing or have achieved um, uh, OPI um, testing certification. Nice. So, yeah, we have a we have a strong knowledge base, and then we also do other things. Um, we've invested in ACTFL's virtual learning modules for for faculty members. We had Dr. Erwin Scherner come to uh, URI as a Max K Distinguished Scholar for, for a semester, and we hope to invite him back um, mm -hmm. for, for more fun in the future. And, um, when, and you so, do, when you do send him our way, too, we're not that far apart. <laughs> we're, we're a big fan of Evans. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, he's, he's awesome. So, um, you know, so we've really done uh, what, I, what I think is our due diligence mm -hmm. um, to make sure that everyone is kind of educated with what this all entails, because at the end of the day, our faculty are the people teaching our students. Sure. So, for, so they definitely um, kind of have to be 
have to have that buy-in as well. And so that's the faculty training. And then we've also looked at, at curricular revamping. And the strategy that we're, we're going with is kind of revamping as we go along. Um, so obviously, as, as faculty learn, they're modifying their courses, but we're doing a strategic revamping from the bottom up, essentially. Mm-hmm. And so every summer, um, we have faculty members across all languages that come together um, under the guidance of our ICC coordinator, and they look at their classes and they overhaul them. So starting from one-on-one on up with everything that they've learned. And what's really cool about that is that it's all the languages coming together mm-hmm. <laughs> and doing it together. That doesn't mean that Spanish classes look exactly like Arabic classes or something, sure. but that there's a good cross-pollination of ideas um, and kind of camaraderie as we all go through this process together. Um, so, so yeah, we also have done other things like create modules in our virtual learning platform um, for students, teaching them about proficiency, teaching them about the tests that they take so that mm-hmm. they're not shocked or surprised yeah. uh, once they take them, uh, teaching them about the actual guidelines, um, things like that. So, yeah, doing a comprehensive approach, I think. Wonderful. Could I just build on something with that, with regard to what uh, Leanne said, yeah. just to give you just sort of an idea of the scope of this? Um, you know, we have, again, it sort of varies by the year, but we have 28 to 30 full-time faculty members in our department. So when she says that we all underwent four-day OPI training, I mean, we're talking about uh, some scholars who are like me who have zero competence in in uh, any sort of applied, you know, linguistic mm-hmm. endeavor. And so, uh, you know, so it was huge. I mean, this is, we're talking about people that, that come from 18th century Italian, from film and, and, and the Maghreb, you know, we're talking about all, just a range of people who decided to buy into this four-day OPI training. And what that did was it gave us a common vocabulary and a common understanding of what was developmentally appropriate for our students. So for those of us who are non, um, non-linguists, uh, it very quickly became clear to us uh, what we c- could and should be doing mm-hmm. in, our, in, our, in our upper-level language courses because we had that typical language literature divide. Um, and so the humanities are still, they still have a, a, a very important place in our, uh, you know, in our department and in our curricula, but, but the proficiency initiatives allowed us to, um, to really get a sense for, again, what is developmentally appropriate. And so I've really appreciated that. That's wonderful. I mean, this is, this is everything you're talking about is exactly how a department should be structured and how we really can support the the proficiency of our students. This is really a model for everybody else to replicate. Yeah. And one of of the things that was a great unifying force, I guess, was really putting the students first, Mm -hmm. because that's an argument Mm -hmm. that nobody disagreed with, (laughs) Uh no matter what the disparate research interests or anything like that was. And, you know, given the profile of our students, it was was obvious that this was something that, that they would want. And so, you know, we're we're all good people and educators at heart, right? Like this is, this is yeah. something that everyone, no matter what um, kind of research they did, could get on board with. So I think that was kind of uh, key to it. Mm-hmm. We also just have great faculty, but still <laughs> <laughs> unifying. <laughs> I was just going to say that, uh, you know, the other, the other added benefit uh, that Leanne, that she touched on, but is that it's easily art- articulated to the upper administration and to parents, you know, and so the upper administration, um, you know, obviously funds these initiatives. And so 
the upper end administration understands the word proficiency and they understand language proficiency and they understand uh, companies looking for people who are proficient in languages. And so it was just like an immediate, uh, it's, an, it's an immediate click with the upper administration um, and the same for intercultural communicative competence. Everybody understands intercultural competence. Can you talk a bit more about your findings related to the benefits of proficiency assessments? Uh, so what we do is we test our students every semester at URI. We don't test every student every semester, though, because we have um, mm -hmm. thousands of students. That, that would be too much for me to handle because I organize the testing. So we test students strategically at what we call the midpoint and the endpoint. And so the midpoint is like a bottleneck course um, that most language majors or almost all ma language majors pass through at a certain point. So that usually corresponds to between the fourth and the sixth semester of language study if you were to start at the most basic level um, course. And so that would be the midpoint. And we test every student that passes through that midpoint every semester. And then we also test at the end point, which is usually um, right before graduation, so that um, students that are graduating go out on the market with the certificate of their proficiency mm -hmm. as they as they leave our doors. And so we kind of have these two different snapshots into, into our program. That's um, kind of our typical testing structure, but we have done um, kind of additional testing or different testing depending on the needs of different languages and, and language sections. The test that we most typically use is the uh, OPIC, the Oral Proficiency Interview Computer, uh, and the ALIRA the uh, actual Latin interpretive reading assessment for, for Latin. Uh, yes, even Latin is part of this, part of this initiative. <laughs> um, and so, so yes, we're, we're primarily looking at um, speaking scores. That's kind of the baseline of what we do. But again, we've, we've done uh, reading testing. We've done listening testing. Um, we've, we've done almost it all. And we've done writing testing in a couple of languages as well. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the basic structure. And that's kind of the, the data that we have um, at hand. And so what we're really looking for is kind of um, testing students to get where our baseline is, mm -hmm. revamping our curriculum, and then continuing to test them so we can kind of make evidence-based interventions in terms of, of what we're doing with our curricular revamping. But the testing in itself, even though we're waiting for that kind of long-term data, the testing in itself um, really does have benefits for students. I mentioned before, they go out on the market with a certificate of their, of their linguistic ability. Um, it provides positive washback. Like, it's very clear what the goals are, both for faculty and for students. And so faculty are really looking at their student scores at the end of each semester, too, right, to see where their students are. Mm -hmm. um, Testing also uh, can provide you with information about students that you can use for advising or to differentiate sure. your t teaching, which is also great. Um, so testing in the short term has really served to, to benefit both our faculty and, and students as well. Um, so yeah, so the, the testing has been, has been great. Um, and so in terms of research, uh, we're looking at where we are now and where we're going. And then we're also looking at... Um, kind of uh, more specific issues uh, that affect our students now. So we're looking at, for example, how how to advise them on how to correct, how to select the correct form on the OPIC. When you take the OPIC, there are various different levels. 
Mm-hmm. And the students have to select their level. Mm-hmm. And that's a choice that <laughs> is fraught with danger. Yes. <laughs> because if they pick at yes. uh, too high a level, then they can't um, get a rating on that test because they don't mm-hmm. meet the minimum baseline <laughs> uh, proficiency you need to get a rating. So it's 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 fraught with worry for, uh, for me <laughs> and difficulty for the students, even though they don't really know it. So we're looking at how to aid them in, in selecting the best test form. We, um, and we piloted the APPT, which is the mm-hmm. actual proficiency placement test for the first time uh, last semester. And so we're looking um, at that data now and trying to determine what are appropriate cutoffs and how, how did the test function, what did students think of it, um, things like that. And then this semester, we have our first round of um, IDI testing, which is the Intercultural Development Inventory. Um, and so we'll be, that's part of our ICC initiative. So we'll mm-hmm. be looking to see how, um, uh, what relationship there is, if anything, between uh, proficiency and, and IDI. For people who are, are again, sort of more literature focused or content, um, you know, sort of traditionally content focused, uh, you know, while this, this might sound a little overwhelming, you know, like, again, the benefits are, are, are huge because, um, you know, so for example, I teach a, um, I teach two upper level literature courses and thanks to the testing that the students do, uh, I'm able to then establish their levels and then create, then I differentiate the learning based on developmentally appropriate uh, tasks. And so like a student that's an intermediate mid student, for example, I'm not going to ask them to analyze a text because they're not able to do it linguistically. Whereas a student that might be advanced mm-hmm. low or advanced mid, I can ask to, um, especially if I'm going to start pushing them towards, you know, advanced high, um, I can ask them to analyze in the target language. So it's not to say that an intermediate student can't analyze a text. It's just that they don't linguistically, they don't have the skills to be able to do it. So if I'm going to ask them to do that, then I have to sort of, I have to switch back into English. Um, and then another, um, you know, another thing that's wonderful with regard to this testing is study abroad, um, you know, for study abroad advising. Uh, because we send a lot of our mm-hmm. students abroad, obviously, for a semester or for a year. And if the goal is um, is to increase language proficiency while abroad, I mean, we used to have a, a strategy where we just sent them abroad, crossed our fingers, and hoped they would make linguistic gains. Um, but, you know, <laughs> but what we've done since then is that we're able to identify what their levels are before they leave. And so we can uh, then advise them on the right program, uh, get them involved in the right types of immersion programs or content-based if they're ready for it, uh, programs. Um, And uh, and then we can also sort of assess their levels uh, when they get back to see how much they actually gained. And then in conjunction with intercultural communicative competence, um, you know, these two things are, 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 are intricately tied because so many students, they go abroad and they get abroad and then they turn around within a week and come back because it's just too culturally overwhelming and they don't have the tools. Uh, or they go abroad and they don't make the proficiency gains that they should because, um, because in, on an intercultural level, uh, the competence is not high enough for them to get beyond sort of the obstacles of daily life. So mm-hmm. these two initiatives together are just, in, you know, are invaluable, I think, to any language department that's seeking to, an undergraduate language uh, department that's seeking to create global professionals. Mm-hmm. So since you've launched this um, initiative or both of these initiatives, um, have you seen changes in the proficiency levels within your student body or is it too early to really say, you know, exactly what the effect is? That's a really great, great question. Um, 
So our first round of proficiency testing occurred, I want to say in spring 2019. Oh, okay. So not that long ago. And then COVID hit. Yes. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So um, obviously the format of of instruction has changed um, Mm -hmm. quite radically. And then also um, the testing modality has changed slightly. So the way, one of the things that I didn't mention was that we um, test, generally speaking, during class time. That's another um, impressive buy-in from faculty members. All faculty members that are slated for testing dedicate um, either a class day or part of their final exam time to testing. And so um, that's kind of the structure. You test in person (laughs) and you test during class time, which obviously doesn't work well with COVID. And so um, ACFL and LTI do offer remote proctoring, which we do have historically used um, since COVID hit. And so we've continued on with our testing, but I'm hesitant to kind of sure. <laughs> say whether or not sure. we have great data as to how well, um, you know, this has been working so far, just because um, both the instruction has changed so radically. And then also the testing structure in itself has changed mm-hmm. radically in the sense that the remote proctoring is a very different testing environment than, than testing um, during class. So I'm, I'm pleading the fifth for now. <laughs> We're going to give it a few more years for the world to stabilize. There you go. And then we'll kind of reassess. Well, and then we'll check in with you maybe you in a few seasons on our podcast here and see the 2.0 version of, of what's happening at URI. Exactly. Yeah. Hound, hound me back down. I think it's important to, to keep in mind though, also that this is a long-term it's a, it's a, it's a very, it's not a, this is not a quick, a quick thing that we put in place. It's long-term. And so, you know, so we've only revamped our first two semesters of courses. We're doing two more semesters this semester. Um, and so to have an idea of whether, um, you know, our, our course revamping is effective. I mean, that's one question is our course revamping effective, right? And so we, mm-hmm. we need some time to put in place all of the course revamping and then, and sure. then test that. Um, but I think like where we see changes immediately anyway are, um, and they're more anecdotal at this point, but um, are in the way that we communicate language learning to our students, because before we weren't communicating how you learn a language to students. We were just, like I said, like same approach as study abroad was the approach to teaching language. It's like you teach the language class, you cross your fingers, they hope make, that they make progress, uh, and then you send them on their merry way. And um, and now, uh, and the students had no idea of, you know, they're sitting in language class. Oh yeah, I guess I should be learning about direct object pronouns. Okay. I've just learned them. Wonderful. You know, except for, you know, like <laughs> students don't realize that. And, and then, and then, you know, those students that have taken four semesters of language say, uh, when they're, when they've graduated, uh, yeah, I took four semesters of Spanish or French or Arabic, but I don't remember anything. Um, yeah, well, it's because they don't understand that, uh, that, you know, if they only made intermediate low, well, no, they can't make sentences yet, right? Uh, and so they mm-hmm. needed to put, they, they would have needed to push themselves, um, you know, up a level um, in order to start to be able to, to, to communicate more effectively. And so it's like the this, this fact that students are now learning, you know, in a lot of our classes, we're taking the time to explain to them you know, what does novice mean? What does intermediate mean? What does advanced mean? Yeah. And it makes a big, big difference for students to know that, okay, yeah, I guess I am that intermediate mid. That means I can, you know, I can communicate with a sentence. I know that I'm going to make lots of mistakes. I know that I haven't mastered the past tense yet, but I know that that's what I have to push myself to do to get to intermediate high or to get to, you know, to, to advance low. If I want to get to advance low, well, I better stop, you know, starting a story in the, in the, in the past and continuing it in the present. 
You know, I mean, it's like things like this where they're starting, the students are, are starting to realize what they have to do in order to move up a sub-level. And that's mm-hmm. huge. That's huge compared to what we used to do. Mm-hmm. What's up next? Are you continuing and expanding the initiative? Are you analyzing other aspects of the data? Uh, inquiring minds mm-hmm. want to know. <laughs> so, so yeah, I think what I what I mentioned before is also kind of what up what's up next. It's what we're currently working on. So, um, we're looking at, for example, the APPT in, in more detail. We're looking at how to select correct forms on the OPEG. We'll be doing that proficiency and IDI testing this spring and looking at the data for that. My hope um, is that long-term, we'll also be looking um, more critically at study abroad. That Mm -hmm. took a really hard and obvious pause uh, with COVID. Um, We have some great work that's already being done with our international engineering program and study abroad, with the International Studies and Diplomacy program. They're they're working um, a lot on training before going abroad as well. And I hope that that's something that we build out in terms of ICC and proficiency for all of our students studying abroad in in all of our programs and maybe even on um, provider programs as well. Mm-hmm. So I hope we take that turn in the future. You know, the, given the state of the world, that's <laughs> not happening at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> I'm more optimistic that we can kind of uh, re-pick that up next next year. The year yeah, and as department chair, I'm, I'm chair for another... Um, year and just a little bit less than a year and a half and I told the department that I'm stepping down so what I'd like to do within this time you know is just make sure that we that we keep evolving with the uh, the ICC initiative alongside the proficiency initiative robustly um, and then um, you know and then building out our signature programs um, there's a lot of potential there um, you know, and then we'll see what the next department chair does. Well, and then maybe, Karen, you can also write a manual for other department chairs and administrators on how they con- can convince their faculty <laughs> members to buy into such a wonderful um, initiative. I know that um, when I was involved at Michigan State at that profici- proficiency initiative, that certainly was something that we struggled with, too. How do you convince all um, faculty members in all the various units to to actually follow this proficiency-oriented trajectory. So your wisdom will be appreciated (laughs) by many. It's appreciated by me. Imagine my terror (laughs) when I accepted this job and realized before I knew everyone, right, and knew that this was actually working well. Imagine my terror at accepting this job that puts me right in the center of what I thought was going to be a really thorny and polemic issue. Um, among faculty members. Like, I thought that I was just going to be the lightning rod. (laughs) And I am very happy to say that I I was very wrong. (laughs) And and Karin somehow did magic before my arrival and and got people um, on board. I I did not expect that. (laughs) So what final piece of advice do you have for language educators who are interested in articulating the importance of proficiency to all the stakeholders, students, parents, administrators, employers? What one piece of advice would you give to your colleagues? Hmm. Those are a lot of stakeholders. That's a good question. Um, you know, I, I think I would focus on the students first. And in, in our experience, this has been kind of a natural sell <laughs> to students. Or you know, I, I, I'm not even sure that we're selling it to students. I think that this is what the students naturally wanted. <laughs> and we are honoring their wishes by continuing with, with this um, proficiency initiative. And so I would say that if you focus on the students and what is best for the students and what they're asking for and and what would benefit them in the future, then you see this kind of, um, you know, 
washback or benefits for other stakeholders as well. So by putting the students first, obviously <laughs> their parents win, <laughs> right? That, I think that one's kind of easier. But by putting the students first, um, you know, administrators also have, in our experience, gotten on board with it. And we've been able to secure things like position requests, <laughs> which is really, really difficult in academia, right? Um, we've been able, by putting the students first, we've been able to um, kind of shore up and secure our enrollments, which is magical <laughs> in in, in yeah. current times, right? So um, I think by really looking at what's in their best interest and by uh, trying to serve them for the best of their, to our ability, um, it has a lot of, um, you know, positive, a positive domino effect for a lot of different stakeholders, including ourselves. If people are struggling to articulate the importance of proficiency to, um, well, maybe it's all. There's three really useful, actual visuals that I use. Um, the first is the inverted pyramid uh, and have people understand that that's the amount of hours it takes to move from one level to the next. Um, the the second um, is the, the the graph, not the graph, but the chart with all the um, uh, the categories of languages and how many hours it takes to get from one level to the next. Uh, so group one languages, it takes a certain number of hours to get from intermediate to advanced, et cetera. And then the third one is the actual chart where it talks about the number of, um, it takes, talks about the proficiency levels and what you can do professionally with those proficiency levels. And that one is really super helpful for all stakeholders because then people can see why at intermediate mid, you can't do anything professionally yet. That's why you have to hold on and keep going. You know, it's a long-term investment. And that's how I get people on board um, with regard to how long of an investment this is. Um, so those are the three the, the, the three visuals I think are, are useful. All right. Well, before we sign off, we'd like to ask both of you to share your favorite word in a language you speak, love, or are learning. Uh, Leanne, would you like to start? Okay. <laughs> so I've thought about this because I knew this was coming. <laughs> and um, I, I do what every respectable academic um, does in these situations is I went to my two and a half year old <laughs> and, <laughs> and asked her uh, which thought. And the word that she gave me is um, cambur which is a, a word in Spanish that might actually be a new word to many Spanish speakers because it's Venezuelan Spanish, and it means banana. So when I became a, a, a mother, <laughs> I knew the fight that I was going to fight was going to be to get my kid to be bilingual or to maintain her Spanish. Her father is Venezuelan. I, I am not. I'm not Latina, but I, I obviously speak Spanish as an as a assistant professor of Spanish. And so we speak Spanish at home, and I knew that I was going to fight the getting my kid to speak Spanish fight. Mm -hmm. um, but what I didn't realize is that I was also going to get fight the fight to get my kid to speak Venezuelan fight <laughs> or mm -hmm. Venezuelan Spanish fight. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so like now that she watches quarantine YouTube because I need to get work done, she's watching all these shows and some of her Venezuelan words are being supplanted by words from other regions. And for some reason, it makes me incredibly sad. I have no idea why. <laughs> so cambur is that word that she says a million times a day. She's always asking for a banana and it, uh, <laughs> and it makes me see her as a little uh, kid of Venezuelan descent, which makes me happy. I think, uh, you know, that will slowly go away. That's so awesome. I'm sticking with Cambur. <laughs> All right, Karen, how about you? Lacker. Lacker is uh, an Afrikaans word. Uh, I'm from South Africa. And it's while I, while I reject my um, cultural up upbringing, uh, 
Uh, I do still, it's still my home language, Afrikaans. And lekker is this word that means, it can mean anything that's positive. It can mean nice, wonderful, yes, that was delicious. It can mean, oh, that that was just such a great experience. You know, this was a wonderful talk, lekker. You know, it's a, it's it's just a, it's my favorite word. Well, you know, I think to that, all I have to say is lacquer. Am I saying that right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there you go. Well, thank you so much for speaking of language with us, Leanne and Karen. Yeah. Thanks for having My us. pleasure. Thank you so much for having us. Next week, we will talk about the history of African languages at Cornell with Dr. Andri Teres Asielumumba. Until then. Auf Wiederhören. The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu or look for Cornell LRC on Facebook and Twitter. Speaking of Language is produced by Angelica Kramer and Sam Lupowitz. Recorded by Sam Lupowitz. Original music by Sam Lupowitz, Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson. Thanks also to the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell University. As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Sciences or any other official entity of Cornell University. We thank our listeners, and do stay tuned for our next episode.